0: Actually, I believe it was actually the last week of October, we looked at a series, just it was like a one-off on discipleship and looking at lessons of discipleship taken from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there were three points I actually made reference to. We looked at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 and we just briefed over three points taken from those, those two chapters and although I didn't sing it, I'm wondering if anybody remembers what any of those points were. Does anyone remember what any of those points where I sang? Oh, I didn't sing. I should have sang. You may have remembered it then. Does anyone remember? No, that's fine. That's fine. I just, it shows that I'm useless. So these were the three points that we looked at several, uh, several weeks ago. Let me just turn this on. Several weeks ago in regard to lessons in discipleship taken from the Gospel of Matthew. The first one was that Jesus is the main focus. Jesus is the main focus. It's always about him. It's about his standards, it's about his values, it's about his ultimate plan. The second was viewing church as a family, not as a corporation, not as an organization. But as a but as a as, a, as an actual living Body, an organism that is growing as we, as the living parts of the body of Christ, seek to not only unify ourselves but press together in the same direction for the kingdom of God. And the third point was that we had to count the cost. When we looked at the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, there was a long distance. A long distance would have taken roughly about nine months for them to travel by caravan to get where they needed to go. And they counted the cost and they thought and they waited up and said, Yes coming into the presence of the Messiah was worth it, was worth it, and these were the three lessons we drew from Matthew's gospel. We're going to continue this over the next few weeks because I'm surprised, and I've learned this over my time as a Christian, how many people don't know what discipleship is, or to be more accurate, may not actually know how to disciple somebody. And so this is somewhat practical today, and, and my prayer is, like anything we do on a Sunday, which is a great blessing, it's a great blessing to sing praises and to worship our God together as a family. It is, it is wonderful to be ministered to under the Word and be ministered to by brothers and sisters here as we invest into each other's lives. It's a wonderful thing to take place. But uh, the practicality of it is, how does what we learn in here affect us out there? How does the the passion of God's desire for us and as the pursuit of us to be more like Jesus actually alter our behavior and our conduct when we conduct ourselves at work or at home or at school or wherever it may be? Because as my pastor way, way back in the day when I was a very young Christian, he always said, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where the reality of your relationship with Jesus Christ is actually evident in the way that you live. So, We are going to turn to Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 4. And I'm going to add to those three things. We're going to read a few verses. We're going to start off in verse 1 and then jump down to verse 18 in Matthew chapter 4. And then I'll open in a word of prayer. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2 says this, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. Uh, jump down to verses, verse 18 to 3 to 22. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him, Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your goodness and for the blessing of being able to sit here as a family united in Christ been born again and washed by the blood that you shed on the cross for us and as new creations in christ you have called us to represent you into a world that is without hope that is without light and father to draw these people closer to yourself i pray father we will acclaim your promise that when you were lifted up you will bring all men unto yourself i pray that we as grace christian church will be obedient to that call and will claim such a promise and exalt you in our lives as Lord, as King, and as Sovereign, so that people will come to know you just as we have. Please help me to speak slowly this day. Please help me to communicate your truth for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said before, it is a strange fact that there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that don't know how to disciple someone. They don't know where to begin. They don't know what to do. And in this study, I have learned that genuine, godly, and life-changing discipleship has to extend beyond your Sunday morning service. It has to extend beyond your midweek Bible study. It has to extend beyond, say, the monthly prayer meeting. Life-changing, godly discipleship, as we've heard this phrase over and over again, I think so much so, that we've become somewhat immune to the actual meaning of the phrase. When you hear the phrase, doing life together, that's what exactly it means. It means you actually walk together. But more often than not, because we live so far from each other and we're all busy now, I... I know life is busy. My life is busy and, and, and I understand that dynamics change. People become parents, people get jobs, people retire, people look after grandkids, there are people lose jobs. There are so many things that take place that the dynamic changes. And that's fine. I, I have no issue with that whatsoever. But for genuine discipleship takes, for take to take for genuine discipleship to take place means we've got to go beyond just these organized scheduled events. And it may not be in person to person. It, It might be a phone call. It might be an email. It might be something to let them know, I'm praying for you. But when we look at what Jesus did, you see how he didn't keep restricted to a certain time frame. You see the way Jesus worked, and if you look at verse 1, I want to start off with a very important principle here. In verse 1, we read, once again, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, the same account is given in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, we read this, Jesus, being full of this Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Fair enough. But you notice he was led of the Spirit. It wasn't his own idea. It wasn't his own thought. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to fast for 40 days, 40 nights. Then you read in verse 14 of the same chapter this phrase, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. See, there's a little bit of an addition that Luke provides in his account where he was led by one, he returned in power. And it's that returning in power that I think is very important because returning in the power of the Spirit means he's not relying on himself but rather upon the power of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.5, I, I think, believe says that, that your, f- that your faith will not rest in men but in the power of God. That's where it, right. and this is my first point I want to actually make mention of regarding discipleship. There has to be divine involvement in discipleship. There has to be. There has to be divi- Jesus being led to the Spirit resulted in him being empowered in the Spirit at his return. And the reason I raise this observation is to stress the fact that when you are dealing with people, especially identifying the right people. You need the Spirit of God to discern which person you're dealing with. My pastor back in New Zealand, who's actually Pastor Roger, do you remember Pastor Roger? Pastor Roger's father-in-law, John Mansell, very, very great man. I was a young Christian. I remember we would have prayer meetings Saturday morning, 7 a.m. at his house. So we'd go there, we'd have prayer meeting. And I remember talking with him, and he he was feeling down one day. And I said, everything right, bro? And he goes, oh, Joe, it's, dealing with people is hard. And I says, really? And he goes, yeah. And he says, I'm a boilermaker. So he actually, he was, he was a boilermaker and a welder. He was a man who loved working with his hands. And he shared with me, when I worked with boilers, I could construct something, look at it, and think, yeah, there is my work. It's done. And there was a sense of satisfaction. And then he said to me, when you work with people you don't see anything. When you work with people, it's hard. When you work with people, you have to trust God because God is working in people's lives and ways and in means that you don't understand. And so so with John, he was just called to be faithful and to do what God had called him to do, and he was faithful in doing that. So it is with me, so it is with you, because what do we do? We, being physical beings, we identify an applicant by what they look like. We look and we see, do they have the qualifications at the end of their name? We look and we look at their talents and their abilities and we think, oh yes, they should be good with this because, and we list the criteria of why we think they should be in this particular role. Make sense? But that may not be the person God has called That may not be the person God desires. And being in ministry for so many years, I have made mistakes based upon a need. And I've chosen people based upon a need and based upon the talents that that person had. And I put them and I placed them in a role and boy, did that turn out bad. And I remember my wife and I going back afterwards and saying, I think we rushed into it. I think we made a mistake. Why? Because we didn't seek the heart of God. We didn't seek the heart of God and the person that He wanted in the place. See, to actually discern God's will and God's person, we must make our choices grounded in and established in God's heart with God's wisdom through God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Discernment of what people are like and where people are at can only come from the Spirit. And that means what? That we ourselves must in turn walk in the Spirit and remain in the Spirit to enable us to make a Spirit's choice and not our own. Uh, Dan Keegan, a very godly man shared with me one time when there was a ministry position available to me he said to me this don't go somewhere because there's a need because every ministry, every place has a need go there because that is where God has called you to go and I was like wow, okay but that's exactly where it is, isn't it? and that's why we need to take some time and spend with the Spirit where do you want us to go? Who would you like me to choose? What are we to be doing? See, such a reality as this has to find its application in our lives as well, especially in discipleship, where we are to identify by the Spirit the work is He is doing in the heart of a person. Firstly, if they're not a Christian, by leading them to Jesus. If you notice, whenever Jesus dealt with people, the way He dealt with them was to sort of Establish for them where they truly were with God. And I think that's a really important fact. Uh, there's a, I got given a, an evangelism tool, and it was called Share Jesus Without Fear. And it was way, way back in the early 90s. It was, it was a guy who did a lecture in the late 80s, and it was a little cassette, a little cassette which I listened to. And it was really, really good, but one of the principles he thought, uh, that, he, that he applied was, when you go to share the gospel with someone, see where the Spirit of God is working, because you don't want to cast your pearls before the swine. And so interact with people, talk with them, find out where they, where they are with God and how they want to know and, and just sit down and find out. And if they don't want to talk about Jesus, and the questions he answered were things like this, If, like, I remember it, one of the questions was, to you, who is Jesus Christ? Just just a plain, general conversation question. And they give, everybody loves their views on things. Everybody loves to talk about, oh, this is what I think of Jesus. This is what I think what happens when we die. This is what I think this, that, and the other. And that's what this question does. It's just a, an opener. It's like, okay, so to you, who is Jesus Christ? They give you a view. What do you think happens when you die? They give you a view. The third question is, if, you're, if, if, if your views differ from what God says in the Bible, would you be interested in finding out? And if they say no, then don't worry about it. If they say yes, oh, let's look at this together. This is what the Bible says. That's what you know if the Spirit's working there or not, because that's what the Spirit is doing. He is desiring that all should come to repentance, that none should perish. And so this is, a, I think, a vital thing, especially when it comes to discipleship, to be praying. Lord, who can I invest into? Lord... How can I bless somebody? Lord, who can I pray for? But this has to come from the Spirit. The second one comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, which says this As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I'm going to spend a lot more time on this particular point, but this is the second point. There has to be a definite goal in mind for discipleship. See, the Lord Jesus laid out plainly what he was asking of these men. His ultimate goal was to what? Make them fishes of men. Meaning he would take their skills, take their talents, take their very beings and alter them in such a way whereby they could apply those principles, those, their being, their, their thoughts toward the kingdom of God. But that is not achieved by good intentions, and it's not achieved by superficial interaction. It's achieved by having something laid out, having a goal. Jesus knew what his plan was. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And everything that Jesus did was in relation to that plan, including the people that he called, was to seek and save the lost. The direction he was called to take, he didn't do so alone. He chose men whom he deemed as useful for his purpose of the kingdom. Not because they had heaps to offer, but rather he had heaps to offer them. That was the focus. So what Jesus did was invest into, invest into their lives in such a way that caused them to leave their livelihoods, leave their jobs, leave their security blankets, and make them productive fishermen. He showed them, he showed them what was required of them in his own action. He called them in such a way where he walked with them, and he showed them in his teaching In John 13 through to 16, the discourse in the upper room where he explains everything that he's doing, where he's going, and the spirit that's going to come upon them. He showed them in what he was doing in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. That's when he sends out the 72 In interaction, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, was when he walked on water in complete trust on his heavenly Father when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is how Jesus showed them. He showed them in his own life. And the thing is this, they were there along for the ride. And that's what I think discipleship is is all about. Everything he did was for the purpose of bringing these guys through what he showed them for the goal that he was seeking to complete and and he took his disciples with him so they too would have a clear knowledge of what he was aiming for in, in their lives. Now, I'm not wanting to sound motivational or corporate in my wording, but in the relationships you share, even though you don't have the official title of discipler, or a discipleship leader, you are discipling somebody through your actions, regardless of what you think. That is the influence that you have. I was speaking with a family just recently, and we were having a chat, and I was speaking with the dad, and I said to him, "Bro, I said, bro, your primary ministry is to your family." you want to know if you can disciple someone and invest into someone's life and to lead somebody to Jesus Christ, you know where that starts, bro? That starts with your son. That starts with your daughter. The fact that you have this family in your household that you see 24 hours a day and you get to invest into their lives and lead these lives to the person of Jesus Christ, man, there ain't no better gift than that. We sit there and talk about who can I share with, who can I bless, who can I share the gospel with. It starts in your home. So, bro, there you have it. You want to know how you can disciple someone within your family, your wife, that you can bless your wife, and if you're discipling her, you're bringing her closer to Jesus Christ. That's who you're discipling. That's who you're influencing. That's, That's where it is. So you've got to understand something, that for everybody here, you are either intentionally or unintentionally discipling somebody through your actions, through your attitudes, and through your words. Think about that for a second. That means when you have the gossip session and there are people around, you're discipling them because you're showing them how important God's people, God's house, and God himself is to you by the gossip that you're saying about that brother or sister in here. That means the attitude and the actions and the thoughts that you have about someone or the complaints that you have about somebody within the church, that is directly affecting, it may be the kids that are in your household that hear you complaining, oh, Pastor Joe, he always sweats so much. Oh, Pastor Joe is this, or Pastor Joe. Is, that's what happens. And so what you're doing is that you are unintentionally, unintentionally discipling them and their attitudes toward the people of God that means oh oh we've got prayer meeting this week ah oh, it's just prayer meeting we have that every month you know what you've done you've just shown your family how important prayer is to you do you understand what i'm trying to say you are unintentionally discipling somebody in the views that you have I, look this is not getting on you know, this, oh, when you show up to church 20 minutes late Look, I'm not, I'm not, okay, please, I'm not, I'm not, don't give me, okay, I'm just, I don't be really sitting there ah, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not sitting there. But I'm saying, look, what, what do you show people when you show up 5, 10, 15, 20? We start at quarter past 10. Well, start at quarter past 10. So what are you showing people around you when you show up whenever you feel like it? Does that make sense? So, I'm, I'm not one of, If i have offended, please forgive me and, and you come and talk to me afterwards. And I'm not saying that you don't, You know, if you're late, you're late. And there's reasons and stuff, but I, I know when I'm late and I know when I'm lazy. So that's between you and God. But I know when I'm late and I know when I'm lazy. I know when I'm really keen and I know when I can't be bothered. And this is where God's going to sit there and impress upon my heart because what am I teaching my kids when I do what I do and say what I say and the attitudes that I have towards other people. You see, this is what discipleship is. If discipleship is about doing life with other people, then how do you do life with others, and how is what you're doing drawing people closer to Jesus Christ? That's what it comes down to. That's what it shows. Because I know, according to the Scriptures, what some of the goals are. See, for Jesus, the goal was to make fishes of men. I know in the scriptures some of the goals. Philippians three fourteen. Here's the goal that we are given that we are to press toward the mark for the high calling of God that is in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter three, verse fourteen. I know that goal. So how am I demonstrating my pressing on? How am I pressing on with you next to me? How are we pressing on together? That's that's a goal. And, and you may not, like I said, you may not have, I may not have walked up to Craig and said, Craig, bro, I would love to invest in your life. I may not have done that, but I, I might hang out with Craig and we might talk sport. Or we might talk food, because that's the only things we have in common, sport and food. But how am I with him, pressing, pressing him into the call, high calling of God in Christ Jesus? Does that make sense? It's not official. It's a friendship, but in that friendship, discipleship is taking place. I know the goal, that I am predestined. My ultimate goal is to be predestined, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. That's my destination. That's where I am headed, that ultimately I'll be like Jesus. We see that in 1 John. When we see him, for we shall be like him. That's what you're told in the scriptures. So how then is my conduct enabling you to become more like Jesus? how am I holding you accountable in what you do and what you say that would be more like the Son of God? Actually, how are what you're doing influencing me to be the same? That I'm to be Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that ultimately I'm to be holy and blameless before Him in love. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. There's one really cool word in that verse, the fact that we have been chosen to be that. We have been chosen to stand before him wholly and without blame, before him in love. You know what that without blame means? Without blame means no one can lay accusation to you. No one can lay accusation to you. Which means this, how am I conducting myself enabling you to have a testimony that stands gossip, that stands against accusation, that stands against people that seek to tear you down? How am I enabling you to do that? How are you enabling me? This is what discipleship is. This is how it's to take place. See, our conduct can affect the lives of others, either for the kingdom of God or against the kingdom of God. That is the reality of it. Things that can be avoided, like gossip, like lies, like arrogance, like jealousy and envy, like pride, all the things that can be dealt with if we as the family of God truly be the family of God and adhere to the instructions Jesus gives for being made into something. Because there's a word that connects in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. It's that word and. He says, there's a whole cause and effect. He says, come follow me and, that's the cause, I will make you. That's the, that's the effect. So you have the command, come follow me, and I will make you, the consequence. These are the things that take place. Jesus' direct invitation is that of mutual involvement. If you want to be a part of this, if you want to be made into the man and woman that I want you to be, it starts off with this, you come follow me me. You come follow me and I will make you. My favorite Bible verse is Joshua chapter 3 verse 5. I've quoted it a number of times. Joshua chapter 3 verse 5 is that same idea of cause and effect. He says this to Joshua to the children of Israel when they're about to cross the Jordan. He says to them sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Set yourselves apart. That's the cause. What's the effect? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Why? Because he's a God of wonders who desires to work those wonders in your life. Isn't that exciting? The creator of the universe who flung the stars into space with his hand, that spoke everything into existence. He desires to work that same power in each of your lives, in each of my lives. And so he says, come follow me and I will make you. Man, I have seen some people make things. I have seen people make things. So my daughter, Emily, she makes a really nice steak. And so because she you know, she's she's Dad, can you buy me a steak? I say, I oh, sure I'll buy you a steak. Now when I I'm I'm a typical male that when I just like if it's if you have to cook it, you cook it, you know? Like, like but my daughter's like, Dad, can you you gotta follow my instructions. I'm gonna tell you how I like my steak cooked. All right, Emily. Well, she already told you last week, she doesn't like my cooking, but the fact that I was sitting under her instructions, she was okay with that. So she goes, first, Dad, beat it up. All right, so I started beating it up. I beat up the steak. I won, second round. It's good. Okay, I beat up the steak. Then she says, take the salt, Dad, and just a generous thing all over it. So just doing all right. So get the pepper, Dad. All right, I got the pepper. She had now a generous serving all over it. Just, okay, all right then. Heat up the pan, Dad. All right, I'm heating up the pan. Now chuck some butter in there. How much? Heaps of butter. I'm like, oh, yeah. So I chuck in the butter, and it's like sizzling. And she goes, now lay it down gently. So I laid it down. And she goes, now just leave it. And so I'm watching. And she goes, okay. And so after a while, I'm smelling good, she goes, all right, now, Dad, after, I think it was about seven or eight minutes, she goes, now flip it gently. I flip it over. Oh, sorry, while I was in the pan, I had to put salt and, salt and pepper on that side as well. Sorry, I oh, forgive me. Then I flip it over and I do the same. And then she's now baste it, Dad, with the butter. All right, so I just baste it with the butter. And after all that, she goes, Can I have some? And she goes, No. So I got to have her leftover. She, she couldn't finish her whole steak. So she ate what she could. I ate the rest and it was good. It was good. I now make all my steaks that way. Now, here's the thing here's the thing, right? Following the instruction that was given to me, the cause resulted in a steak. That was pleasing to the palate. It was beautiful. But it involved me following the instructions that were laid out for me to receive and partake of something so grand. Make sense? I have, in the scriptures, been told I am to follow. Which means laying aside my ideas, my thoughts, my ways to follow. To come follow me. And what happens? Jesus promises, I will make you. Meaning that I will be made into the man of holiness, the man of integrity, the man that represents Jesus Christ. I'll be made into the man that is pleasing in God's sight for his kingdom and to be able to communicate the gospel to those around me. That's what I will be made into. And I know each and every one of us here desire to be man and women made in God's image. Not, not made in God. We are made in God's image. What I mean is to be the people God has called us to be. That and that involves us. That involves us being made by God. Last week we had Andrew Finn share with us. Just a, we had a little preaching meeting. And he shared with us from Ezekiel 37. And in Ezekiel 37, the, the dry bones and, and, and God in his power, the word of God spoke, and these bones were had flesh and sinews and skin and everything. Every element of life was there, but there was still useless, they became useful when the Spirit of God was breathed into them. God breathed upon them. Now, nobody wants to be useless. Even even in general, we don't want to be useless. Nobody wants their lives to be insignificant, especially for the kingdom of God, and especially since God has given us the gifts to be able to live a life of significance for the kingdom. See, the whole picture that Paul gives of the body is, is testament to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 16, I'll read it to you if you can turn if you want. But we read this. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the air should say, because I am not an eye, I, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. There has to be a definite goal in mind, a direction and deliberate intent in making a disciple. For Jesus, in calling his first disciples, it was laid out plainly. The goal was to be fishes of men. And 14 to sorry, I read. But here's the thing. Just because we are one thing doesn't mean we're useless. Just because we might consider ourselves insignificant doesn't mean we are insignificant. God has designed it so that each individual here, each person that is a part of the family of God, is effective for the proclaiming of the gospel, for the building up of the saints, for the creating of disciples, for the glory of God. We all are. We all are. And just because you might sit there and say, hey, look, I'm I'm not the preacher, that doesn't mean anything. You are just as effective in the life of somebody else. And you might sit there and say, I'm not a Bible study leader. That's so what? You're part of this body, which means you are just as effective. Um, On Thursday, I was sharing this with the guys. On Thursday, I don't know what would happen, but I just, I was teaching in class, and I just broke out in a sweat. I had fevers. I wanted to throw up. And I'm like, wow and I was, it was it was it was painful. Now a lot of people sit there and say, "Oh, when guys have the man flu, it's like, oh, they're useless." Man, I wasn't I was just yeah. And so I got home, I went to sleep maybe at 3:30 and I woke up the next day. But I was and, I, and my wife gave me some antibiotics and I, and now I'm, now I'm fine. And I'm just thinking it could have been something so small. Something so small that could have affected me. But see here's the thing. When one of you is hurting, it affects the body. When one of you is not functioning, it affects the body. See, when one of you is down, other people feel it. When one of you is discouraged, other people feel it. When one of you is other people feel it. This is the effect that you have. If we are a body of Christ, this is the effect we have on one another. We do, whether we think or not, affect each other. There is no useless part of the body, except maybe the appendix, until they figure out what that's for. Anyway, you're not an appendix. Don't use that as an excuse, though. I can you a little John on you. I'm an appendix, Joe. I'm not going to serve. That doesn't count. Okay? Then everyone is necessary and important for the function of the body to achieve its goal. And everything Jesus did, the teachings, the healings, the interactions, and the choosing of these men was done so for the kingdom. So in discipleship, the fact that when Jesus chose these men, it was for the purpose of making them, but it involved them following. Jesus desires to make us, but it means we have to follow. And we have to follow on His terms, not on ours. So, This then is the plan. So that's the goal. That's the goal. So you've got to ask yourself, and the relationships that you share, you want to know what the biggest goal is? The biggest goal is to draw people to Jesus Christ. That's the biggest goal. That's the greatest goal. That's what's involved in fulfilling the commission of Matthew 28 of making disciples. And remember, you, you may be discipling whether you think it or not. But the third one comes actually from verse 23. In verse 23 we read this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, third point. So we've got so far that there has to be divine involvement in discipleship. The second one, you have to have a definite goal in discipleship. But the third one is this. There has to be doing, an act of doing in genuine discipleship. See, in verse 23, I'm assuming he's got... James and John the sons of Zebedee with him he's got Andrew and Simon as well these are the four fishermen that he has just called and what does he do he goes straight out there he goes teaching in synagogues he goes proclaiming the good news and he starts healing every diseases where are these four guys these four guys are with him these four guys are with them and what you find is this that because they're with him they will see what he's doing even though he teaches they see that teaching and practice you can't, you can't sit there and be people of theory. Like I, 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 so many, I know so many smart people, so many book smart people, and, it's, I, and I think that's absolutely amazing, and they're very gifted and very talented, but knowledge that's never actually demonstrated and put into practical use, is dumb. It's actually dumb. If you can't apply what you have learnt or it hasn't actually impacted you in such a way that changes things around you, then what good is it? So so wonderful. You're, who who watches the Chaser? The Chaser, yeah. Chaser is a great show, isn't it? It's a great show. And I look at these people who the who the Chasers are, and, and man, they know a lot of trivia about amazing things that have no practical use in real life. They know a lot of trivia, a lot of trivia, and I guess for them that's wonderful in the job that they have. But what's the point in knowing useless trivia? if it doesn't affect anybody. if, if you, you might have the cure to cancer, but if you keep it to yourself, it's no good to you. It's no good to anybody else. It doesn't help anybody else, does it? And this is what we're told here. There has to be a doing, taking people out. And I remember this when youth in the house went out to Castle Hill. Uh, went out to Castle Hill, and I remember young Johno and some of the young people, and they just went out and they sat with complete strangers at different tables and started talking with them. I remember we went at Collaroy at one of the youth in the house camps. It was wonderful to sit under the word together, but the challenge was from the speakers, and I think it was actually Andrew's idea, was like, let's go out into the public, on the beach, down the road, and let's go pray for people. And so that's what we did. It was scary, yes, but I guarantee you this. When they came back, the testimonies that they shared, oh, man, I got to pray for this guy. Man, this lady, let me pray for him. Oh, I got, I got rejected so many times. But you've got to go out there. Why? Because you're doing something with what you know. The truth. The truth is able to set people free once the truth is expressed. And so we need to, if you want to be discipling somebody, and you pray over someone to disciple, and, and, and you have that direct involvement from the Spirit, it says, I want to disciple into Sarah's life. And then you set this goal. Okay, Sarah, this is where we're going. And you say, okay, this is where we're going. This is how we get there. And you get out and do. You know what that get out and do is? Elderly visit. The elderly visit. You have the elderly visit. Man, I think the elderly, the elderly visit is like the second best place to go and minister. I reckon the first best place to minister is high school. So I work at a high school, and I have each day 180 students captivated in my class, not me not captivated by me, but by four walls because they're not allowed out of the class, but captivated in class for me to talk about God to them for 40 minutes, eight times a day, and I get to tell people about Jesus. That's awesome. You know where else you get to do that? For an hour and a half, once every second month, elderly visit you got a whole bunch of people and what's really cool is this you can practice sharing the gospel with people because I want no disrespect I don't want to mean any disrespect here but they'll probably forget the message you just shared with them the the last time so you'll probably go to the same person share the same message again tell them the same stories and they'll be just as excited that's what's really cool you have that opportunity why would we waste it? why would we waste it? because I can't be bothered why do we waste it? Uh, I'll go next time why would we waste that? This is something active doing that we are called to do. John chapter 6. We're, turn to John chapter 6 and I'll read verses 1 to 14. I'm nearly finished. John chapter 6 verses 1 to 14. I remember sharing this with you. One of the first sermons I ever spoke at Grace Christian Church. So this is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberius, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, What shall we buy bread? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him. It would take more than half a year's wage to buy enough bread for each one one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew Simon Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down, about 5,000 men there were. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to do, came to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You've got active doing here. Jesus is taught, Jesus is healed, Jesus now fed 5,000 people. How did he he distribute that much food to 5,000 people plus women and children? He did it with his disciples. His disciples saw and participated in the work that he was doing. Meaning that whenever they gave food out, they went back to him to replenish. They would give out, go back to him to replenish. They would give out, they would go back to him to replenish. Everything was about going back to Jesus, but Jesus did it with them. Jesus could have sat there and said, boom, everybody's got food on their laps right now. He could have done that. He's got the power to do it. But no, what did he do? He invited his disciples to be a part of the active doing that he was doing in the lives of those people there and providing for them. You and I are disciples of Jesus Christ. He has called us to do actively with him. And if we are to follow his example, means this. You're going to go pray for someone. Call someone up. Hey, Brad, you want to come in? We're going to go see somebody and pray for them. We've got brothers and sisters here who are sick. You're going to go visit them. Hey, Auntie Yang Hong, do you want to come for a visit? We're going to go pray for this brother and sister. It's active doing. Being involved in a person's life. You know why we do that? because that's exactly what Jesus did. You want to know how to disciple? You follow the example that Jesus set. And you see this happen so many times within the Scripture. Think Paul and Timothy. Think Elijah and Elisha. Think Moses and Joshua. You read at these three examples, you see that take place. Moses went and got Joshua, and they went up to Mount Sinai. And Joshua stayed about halfway up, and Moses went up to the presence of God. Elijah and Elisha. Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He actually did twice as many miracles as well. Absolutely amazing. And one of them, I don't think he was, no, one of them, he wasn't even alive. Paul and Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, you read, actually I'll just read Philippians chapter 2, because I love the way Paul views Timothy after he invested into Timothy's life. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20 says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. That's how Paul viewed Timothy. This means, this means, within GCC, we are discipling others around us. But if we desire to be legitimate in our calling, then maybe, just maybe, we should try following the example Jesus set for us as opposed to asking, what, what would Jesus do? Maybe we should be challenged, by, well, what did Jesus do? And follow that example. If these are the six lessons that we drew so far up to, from the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, I would like to challenge you when you compare them the likes of how Jesus is the main focus actually coincides with the fact that there has to be divine involvement. Uh, The fact that we are in order to build a family if if the church is a family of God well that has to be a definite goal a definite goal to build and to edify the family of God. That, That the cost that has to have been counted means this that we are willing to sacrifice in what we're doing especially when it comes to doing for the building up of the saints. See, these are six lessons, six lessons drawn from the Gospel of Matthew, and and I charge you, I I encourage you, I challenge you. Don't let it just sit there. Don't let it just sit here and nothing comes of it. I I pray that you, you take some of the lessons if you know 1 2 maybe one thing god has challenged you with this morning and say okay lord i'm going to i'm going to stop viewing church as a place of what can i get from it as opposed to maybe what can I do to bless somebody else. Maybe, maybe it might be, oh Lord, I just don't want to be a person who sits in the pew anymore. I want to get up and, and do something. And maybe I might bring somebody along. Maybe you might be one of the people that say, as as a as an uncle or as an auntie, look at some of these young fellas and, and these young ladies and think, Oh, I think I can bless, bless this young person with some wisdom about life, because life is hard and life's gonna get harder as you get older. There, there could be one thing. Just one thing. Just take one thing and say, Lord, help me to live this out. Not up here, but in here. And then see what God would do. May we be obedient in responding to the come follow me so we might truly experience the fullness of what He will make in our lives. I am not going to ask the worship team to see I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up. And I'm just going to close in prayer. I'd like to ask you to all be upstanding if the prayer team can come forward, if you would like to be prayed for, if you would like to pray for somebody, then we would invite you to come up as well to be prayed for, and we could pray for others as well. But I hope that there might have been some challenge. Um, We have some wonderful pamphlets to give out for the Christmas carols. Take that on board as well. Pray for somebody. Pray for somebody that you could invite along to the carols night. Pray for someone. Take, and look, What's the worst? They're going to say no. That's it. That's it. Would you like to come? No. Thank you for your time. Take it. Make the most of it. And I would encourage you, if you do take it and invite someone and they reject you or if they accept, tell someone. Take someone on the journey. Take someone on the journey. You know why? Because our God is a God of wonders and He desires to do those wonders among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was one who had a definite goal in mind, one who was dependent upon the Spirit, and one who actually drew people alongside him to show the reality of not only who he was, but who you are as our Heavenly Father. I pray for us as your people that we will be a church that will be doers of your word and not hearers only. I pray that we will not be like those people who look in a mirror and then forget what we are as soon as we turn away. But instead, Lord, take upon ourselves and upon our lives and apply the reality of your word and by your spirit make such a change, such a dramatic change in our hearts so that we will not be powerless, that we will not not be useless for the kingdom of God. Please help us, Lord. Now, unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us. Unto you be glory in the church, both now and forever, even unto the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters. If you want to be prayed for, please come on up. We would love to pray for you this morning.